Thank you, Ricky. That's well read. If you have your Bibles open to that passage, it'd be really good. Let me pray for us. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you. Thank you for your word, that you are a God of your word. Please help me to speak as speaking the very words of God. And please uh, grant us grace to learn from what you want us to learn from this passage. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Travel. Have you done much travelling? How many of you travellers? Uh, you'll notice in our, uh, in our passage and in, the, in Acts since uh, chapter 16 where we look at uh, Paul's second missionary journey, he done, has done a lot of travel. And one of the things I noticed, I, I sat down yesterday and had a look at the map and I realised that he actually did two circuits. And he does it going starting from down on this, this Mediterranean, Mediterranean, he works his way around, comes across to Ephesus, goes back down to uh, Caesarea, back up to Antioch again, and eventually back to Ephesus again. That last bit he does just in the last couple of verses in, the, the, in chapter 18. So he actually does two loops. So he travels. And as he travels, um, he picks up some people. He picked up Timothy. Where did he pick up Timothy, do you remember? In Derby. And then on from there, he picked up another couple called Priscilla and Aquila that became very important in, our, in your uh, message from last week, you'll remember. What did Priscilla and Aquila do for, for Apollos? Set him straight. He only had an understanding of uh, John the Baptist's message, although he had a very strong biblical foundation. He was able to see more about the Messiah um, than perhaps even John the Baptist understood. So we've got travel. But it's not just people who travel. One of the things you'll see in Scripture, in, especially in, as Luke narrates it to us, is that the, the word travels. And in Luke's narrative, he, he just picks on this, and he, he mentioned this little, it's a little cue, uh, three times in Acts. The first one is after the selection of the deacons back in chapter, chapter 7. It says, And the word of God increased, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of priests were obedient to the faith. So we've got God's word increasing growing, moving in the Jerusalem setting. Then in chapter 12, it's a slightly different uh, in, intro to this one, where we've got Herod who uh, doesn't give um, the people praised him, saying, oh, the voice of a God. Do you remember that one? And uh, he didn't give glory to God, and so God sm- uh, smote him, gave him, and he was eaten with worms, and he died a, a, a horrid death. Immediately following that it said, But the word of God grew and multiplied. It's almost the same phrasing as in chapter 6. And this was the King Herod, by the way, who was going to have um, Peter put to death. But uh, Herod, Peter was able to escape um, by a miracle of God releasing him out of prison. And the third time it happens in Acts is at the end of our reading today. Now Luke does this for a reason. 
What does he say at the end of our reading? Verse 20. So the word of God grew and prevailed, prevailed mightily. It grew. What grew? God's word. It's God's word that does the work. A big theme. Now there are other themes in, in you'll recognise in um, in Luke. He has these patterns. When narrative's not always that easy to uh, interpret, but you can see what God is is em- is emphasising. If you look for the things that are being emphasised, you'll see what the, the main points God is teaching. And one of the things I noticed just as I was getting ready for today was uh, whenever they talked about the scriptures, they were uh, the people were saying they argued the scriptures or they proved the scriptures. They were reasoning. It wasn't just a whole lot of disconnected thoughts. They used reasoning, think carefully type approach. Now you can only do that when you've got facts that are going to be linked together and you're dealing with truth. One of the things that Jesus said to the the religious leaders, he said, don't judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. He was reasoning with them at that stage. They They were saying, look, you know, he's got an evil spirit. He, he does what he does by, by Beelzebub. How did Jesus respond? He used reasoning, sound reasoning. And in that particular case, he said, you've, if you've got two people, got a, a man, wants, uh, somebody wants to invade somebody else's house, he better make sure that he can conquer the, 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 the other one. So it, you, to overcome a strong man's house, you have to have someone stronger. So he, and then he had said, well, what about those, your own people who do exorcisms? But once, all, what I'm trying to point out is he used reasoning. Reasoning is going to be an important part of our message today. Now, um, what about miracles? How much did miracles come about in uh, Paul's journey so far? Just think how many miracles since he left uh, on his second journey, how many did he have? None. Oh, there was the one where the um, the the, uh, the the slave girl who could tell uh, uh, the future fortune telling, um, but all he did for her was to shut her up, get kick the the evil spirit out, and uh, in in the lovely town of Philippi, and where did he end up for doing such a lovely miracle? In prison, because God did the miracle of, of, of the earthquake um, that helped the uh, the Philippi jailer to um, come to faith. But other than so, the emphasis really isn't on miracles. What the emphasis in on is the word, the message getting out. So today we come, we see Paul arriving back at Ephesus. He did drop by last time in chapter 18 and said, look, if it's God's will, I'll get back to you. But from that, in that intervening period, he's gone back down to Caesarea, back up to Antioch, spent some time at home there. 
and then he's travelled through through the, the churches that the, that he's been to before, and finally goes cross country and he lands back in Ephesus. And what's the first thing he confronts there? Well, it's a very interesting situation. He comes across another lot or another another um, association with John the Baptist clearly not as well versed in the scriptures or understanding as Apollos was so it's important actually that we remember that we, we, we always take a passage in its context we've just had Apollos who was well versed and but only knew about John the Baptist and now we've got some disciples of John the Baptist by the way where was Apollos from do you remember bottom he was from Alexandria you know where Alexandria is down in Egypt so he's below the Mediterranean and these 12 are up in Ephesus above the Mediterranean John's message got a long way didn't it now but how much did these second group understand well they they hadn't picked up even half of um, uh, John the Baptist's message because he was saying there's someone coming after me they hadn't uh, cued onto that and they hadn't picked up the second bit that when the the, the one coming after me he is going to baptise not with water for repentance but with the Holy Spirit it's going to be a different a totally different baptism so what happens to them well they get rebaptized. Once they realise they get the they, they, they get the correct message, and what's the correct message? Jesus is the Messiah. He is God in the flesh. Came and died for our sins. Very rose again. He now is the reigning Lord. So we need to be baptised in His name. That's by the way. That's the only record of a uh, a rebaptism in uh, the New Testament. But then, um, interestingly, Paul lays his hands on them, like Peter did back in um, uh, Acts uh, 8, where, uh, you remember with the Samaritans, they hadn't received, the, they, they believed in the Lord Jesus, and uh, uh, Peter laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit and spoke in other languages and prophesied. Same thing happens here. Now the, the question is why? What was the what was God's purpose in them having that experience of speaking in tongues and other languages or and in prophesying? What did it signify for them? It would help them to see they now have the genuine article. You get that? Yeah, they'd been following John the Baptist, um, believing that they'd got the good oil, but they had not had the, the, the true gospel, the full gospel about the Lord Jesus. So it had the purpose of confirming to them, the recipients, that they had indeed made the transition to be part of God's people. 
wasn't enough to just follow John's message, they had to believe in Jesus. Now, it also would have had the purpose of uh, confirming Paul's apostleship because of the way he cop- copied what um, um, Luke had already told us about back in Acts chapter 8. That, that uh, John and uh, Peter had laid hands on the Samaritans and they had received the Holy Spirit. Now, this being, it's, it's an, and looking at the commentaries on it, it's, you'll find that the commentators say it's not an easy one to explain because it raises the question is this normative or is it a special one off event in God's plan? Because if we take this passage out of us in isolation, do we need an apostle to lay hands on us to receive the Holy Spirit? Should we look for another experience? I remember in my young Christian days, I was sort of worried, you know, that, that that's what that was the thing. You know, you had to have this second special experience. You needed to have this um, miracle so that you could then know for sure that you had the Holy Spirit. The interesting thing is that the whole sense of Scripture is always not that you look for miracles. You ever notice that? When people came to the, to Jesus and said, show us a miracle, we want a sign, he said, and even an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. It's not looking to signs, and especially one of our own experiences, because what tends to happen then is, which direction am I looking in? I'm looking at, have I had an experience? Rather than looking at, what has Jesus done for me? Who is Jesus? The focus is wrong. In order to trust someone, to believe someone, I'm not looking at me, I need to be looking towards him. But let's take the, uh, the verse back in its context. Uh, had this tongues and prophecy event been happening in Paul's ministry up to this point? Was that a common, normal pattern? Clearly not. This is the only time. And uh, there's no other record in the rest of Acts of it happening again. So it doesn't appear normative. So we can't argue, well, I've got to... God's teaching me from this passage that I've got to have this special experience. So what does the sign in this situation do? It sends a clear message to the recipients that they that have now believed the entire and correct message. And secondly, it has the effect of confirming Paul's message. It happened. They received the Holy Spirit and you could see the result by a clear ability to be able to speak in other languages and to be able to, uh, to overjoy and be praising God and prophesying. That was the way the sign functioned in that particular situation. It would also be helpful for um, those who are going to be reading Luke's narrative later on who are just John the Baptist followers saying, ooh, ooh, uh, Perhaps, in fact, we need to believe in Jesus too. That's really where the message comes. So it's going to be a helpful record for um, those who hadn't, who John the Baptist followers, who hadn't heard 
the gospel. And apparently there were John the Baptist followers for the next 400 years. Interesting, isn't it? Anyway, just while we're on this topic, it might be helpful because this is the last time it's mentioned in the scripture. Let's, in, the, in Acts, let's have a quick review of um, how this event happens earlier in, in Acts. How many times does it happen altogether in Acts? This speaking in tongues, ability to speak in languages and prophesying? Any idea? Four times. First one in Acts 2. What was it? And it's really, I found this really helpful because it helps to see why God does stuff. He doesn't do it just for an ad hoc reason. He uses these things to accomplish a purpose. The first one was in Acts 2 was one out of the box, wasn't it? How many different... You, you had sound, the roaring of a wind, you had light, light show, you had flame coming down, you had them ability, the ability to talk in other languages which were interpreted and recognised as other languages by all the, the multicultural people around. They could all hear the gospel and God being praised in their own languages. It was a huge event. And it was a huge event in God's view of things. That's partly what God's doing. It's a new age. From now on, believers, God's people, are going to be indwelt by his Holy Spirit. That's it. Not, it wasn't like that in the Old Testament. That happens sometime in the Old Testament, but now it's a permanent arrangement. We, a believer, permanently has. The one who believes in the Lord Jesus is given his Holy Spirit. And so the, it, it was a particular time in history, a one-off event, just like the crucifixion and the resurrection. But it was a clear, also a clear fulfilment of Old Testament prophecy because God said, one day this is what's going to happen, as in Joel. And also in it, it established in this brief pattern that it happens this four times, it establishes this clear pattern of speaking in other languages so that when you read the second, third and fourth time, you know that it's what that means when they're speaking tongues. They're speaking in intelligible other languages um, that other nationalities can understand. The ultimate thing on it, though, the ultimate purpose God had with it in Acts 2 was that it was an attention grabber. Whose attention got grabbed? All the people, you know, of the different languages watching and saying, what is going on? Was it possible to misinterpret? What was going on? Oh yes, some of them they were drunk. So Peter said, no, 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 no. Let me, now that we've got your attention with what God's done here, this huge event of his Holy Spirit coming and indwelling his people. Let me tell you the message. Because the important thing wasn't that they all be amazed. They could have all gone home and been amazed. Would that have accomplished God's purpose? What did they need to hear? 
They need to hear about the Lord Jesus, the one for whom and through whom all things exist. The whole reason for the universe. They needed to understand that the, the Messiah that has actually come, the one who's been promised, but he didn't just come, he fulfilled all the scriptures and he died just as God said he was going to and rose again from the dead and now he reigns, he's supreme. They had to get the message about Jesus. They had to get the word. Because it wasn't the miracle that saved them, it was the word. Isn't that helpful? Alright, so that's number one. Number two, the Samaritans. You have to think now, uh, here the Samaritans, they've believed in the Lord Jesus after the preaching, I think of Philip, and um, they heard back in Jerusalem, hey, this, the, the Samaritans, Samaritans joining the, uh, the Christian community, being part of God's chosen people. Yes, Ooh, I don't like that too well. Not if you're a true Jew, you don't, because they don't, you don't get along that well. How can that crew be part of us? Part of God's people? God actually letting them in? And so um, how's God going to prove that they are in? Well, up Peter goes, Peter and John, and they land hands on them and God acts. The Holy Spirit descends on them and they, uh, once again, this miracle happens where they are able to speak in other languages and to prophesy. And so Peter and John say, all right, okay, Samaritans are now in. They're a part of God's kingdom. So it had the effect, the benefit, not just for the Samaritans saying, hey, we're actually part of God's community now. We're not on the outer. We're, we're fellow believers. It also had the benefit for the Jews to say, hey, they're part of the community. Number three, in Acts 10, this time it's the Gentiles and Cornelius. You remember that one? And you know, that takes five chapters of Acts that is dwelt on. Because for a Jew to think that God would allow a Gentile into his kingdom without at least becoming a Jew first or even partly Jew like the Samaritans, that's, that's, that's you know, God couldn't possibly be thinking like that. But God had said already in the Old Testament that the Gentiles were going to be part of his people. So how do you get the, uh, the Jews to accept that? Well, you've got to do a couple of things first. First of all, you've got to convince Peter. So what do you do for Peter? What does he have to have a little bit? Even before he goes near them, what does he have to have first? Remember? Sheep comes down. Eat Peter, Peter three times. No, oh Lord, not, nothing unclean, nothing unclean. You remember that? So he has, he has to go through that experience and then up trip up these three um, who want them to come and talk to the Gentiles. Well, right, okay, God, you're saying go. So he gives them not just the, the, from the message from the Holy Spirit, go with them, but having had that experience. So off they chuff and they go to Cornelius and they speak the word. What does God do? The Holy Spirit, they, they become believers. The Holy Spirit acts and does it in a demonstrative way for a reason. What's the reason? Gentiles are in. Isn't that lovely? 
Do you know if that little chapter, four, five, six chapters in Acts hadn't been there, we would probably have the sense that we need to become Jews first before we could become Christians? That's probably the what God's saying, no, there's no, it's a direct route. We just believe in the Lord Jesus. You don't have to do all this other stuff. Circumcision, the, the law, all that other stuff. We don't earn our way to heaven. Jesus has won it all. Anything that detracts from what Jesus accomplished on the cross is not helpful. So that's why God does stuff. It's good to think through. Now, why did he do it that particular way? All right, so... Back to Act 19. God's purpose in authenticating Jesus' message through Paul laying his hands on those 12 men and they, in turn demonstrated that they had received the Holy Spirit. It had a sort of a multiple benefit factor. See, God wants us to trust his word, to trust him, not some experience. Just imagine if that was what I was depending on. Oh, yes, I remember speaking in tongues one time, and you say, yeah, but non-Christians can speak in tongues. Does that make you... If I'm relying on an experience, what am, where's my faith? Is it on myself or on God? Do you see where I'm coming from? God wants us to trust his word. Now that doesn't mean that God can't give us an experience of some sort. But it's not trusting the experience. It's looking to ourselves, as it were, and seeing what... I'm feeling it's looking at what a trustworthy God we have. He keeps his word. Well, this event actually marks the beginning of perhaps the most fruitful stage in uh, Paul's ministry. And I'll need to move on. Um, We see some patterns, don't we? Once again, Paul goes into the synagogue. He uh, gives a message. Some accept, others refuse. And they get offended and become offensive. So Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left. And he had daily discussions for two years. This is the longest section and perhaps the most fruitful section of Paul's ministry. And the end result of it, you'll notice at the end of verse 10, is then all the residents of Asia, Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. They heard the word. Because it's the word that does the saving. Notice they argued persuasively. That he argued persuasively. I was going to dwell a little bit on this, but I won't spend too much time on it. The world thinks faith is a blind step in the dark, doesn't it? 
watching his show last night, and it's a detective show, and he um, he said, we, "We don't operate by faith. We operate on facts." And I'd just been thinking about this. That's not we don't, we don't operate on a blind step in the dark. We operate on facts because our faith is based on facts. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. When I press the brake of my car, I have faith. What do I expect? I expect the brake to resist, but I expect the car to slow down. It's an expectation. It's an assurance. That's what faith is with God. It's knowing for sure. We are based on facts. And so you can see that Paul would argue persuasively facts. Number one. But secondly, he argued about the kingdom of God. That's a lovely package way of putting it together. He was giving them the whole picture. Because in our Christian life, we or yes, we do the doctrines, but the doctrines aren't individual. Um, there was one false teacher who, uh, named Rob Bell. He said doctrines are like springs. You know, they give us bounce, but he... But they're not like bricks as part of a wall. You know, bricks are all interconnected and, uh, you know, you pull out one brick and the whole thing collapses. Rob Bell said, well, for example, um, I I don't mind not believing in the virgin birth. If you don't believe in the virgin birth, that's okay with me. That brick. What does taking that brick out do? If there wasn't a virgin birth, what can you say about Jesus? Not God. He's not God. He couldn't die for your sins. The whole thing collapses. The beauty of the when you preach the kingdom of God, you preach, and, and Paul's going to say this later on. He gave them the whole counsel of God in its interconnectedness, because one truth holds together in another. And the more you you see that, and as you become familiar with Scripture and understand God's big picture the stronger your faith's going to get. So when you see, um, for example, God prepares Abraham for a journey and he's going to travel all the way to Mount Moriah where he's going to offer up his only son whom he loves and uh, God provides a replacement. What's God doing? He's drawing a picture of what he is going to do couple thousand years later when we see the big picture of what he's done and we we can put all the pieces together it all ties together into one cohesive unit the kingdom of God is a nice label for it so that's what um, Paul unpacks for them the whole interconnected council of God all right but were there any miracles? Well, lo and behold, we've got a rush of them. See, Ephesus was a uh, city. Then we had to ask the question: Then why did God do it? It's always, you know, is there a reason? 
It was a city of superstition, magic, dealing with the spirit world, front and centre. That's the way they operated. That's what they were used to, as we're going to see. So what did the Lord do through Paul? Well, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that touched him were taken to the sick and illnesses were cured and evil spirits left them. This was a demonstration beyond what they'd ever seen before. What is God doing? Think he's getting their attention? This wasn't just another travelling salesman coming through. This one is different. And, and God even, you know, does God need the, the, the uh, hanky touch to Paul to, to be able to pull off a healing somewhere else? Does he need that? God's not limited. He, could, he can live it with, that, with, that, with just a word. But so that they would associate the, the healing or the, the exorcism with Paul, God kindly goes along with their, their understanding and does the miracles anyway. But he does it obviously for a reason. He wants them to believe the messenger so that they will get the message. Interesting in Hebrews 2, it says, For if the message declared by angels was valid, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And this, listen to this bit. This saving gospel was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard him, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his own will. God bearing witness. That's what God was doing in this situation. Did, the, did it get the Ephesian population attention? Fear fell and the Lord Jesus was honoured. But uh, some itinerant Jewish exorcists could see an opportunity here. Some good possibilities with this. Um, does the Lord go along with the spir- their spiritual manipulation? Does the Lord say, yeah, I'll, I'll, these uh, Ephesian exorcists, I'll, I'll uh, honour them? Yes? No. God's not a God who... Be, uh, see, they're trying to claim the authority of the Lord Jesus to make the evil spirit kowtow to their demand to leave. They're claiming authority they don't have or trying to use it. And God is not a God to be manipulated. God is firm in not adapting to the superstitions of the sons of Sceva. So he just leaves them to receive their medicine at the hands of the man with the evil spirit. So you can imagine the front page of the Ephesus Gazette um, and you don't need a photograph you just get the, all the stories you, it was, at least they survived didn't they the seven but arriving home naked and bleeding people are going to ask you what happened and when there are seven that news is going to get out and then people are going to start to put two and two together they tried to claim the authority 
of, the, of Jesus, they didn't know how much power they were dealing with. They, Jesus didn't honour them, but he did honour Paul. So it, this is really affecting uh, a whole population here. In fact, it affected the population of the, of the Christians as well. What did they do? Well, they saw that their work in dealing with magic spirits, with evil spirits, all that art, that craft stuff that they used to play with, ridgy boards, looking at stars and so on, that was a no-no. They were going to no longer do that. And so they burnt some bridges. Do you know how much it cost them? It's interesting that Luke gives us the cost here. One of these silver coins is a day's work. 50,000 of those, divide by, that into, divide by six to get how many weeks, divide that by 52 to get how many years. You've got 160 years of basic of the, of, on the wage. That's payment for 160 years' work. It had a real impact on the society, didn't it? We're going to see it had some flow-on effects in the the weeks to come. So the word of God continued to increase and prevail mightily. God speaks his word and his spirit takes his word and applies it powerfully to accomplish his purposes. God's word prevails. Let me pray for us. Father, we just thank you that you've given us your word. Thank you that you want us to be dependent on it, to rely on what you say. Help us to indeed focus, be our focus not be on ourselves and our own experiences, but on the Lord Jesus and what he's accomplished for us. We pray that, Lord, as you've given us your word, that we might be complete. Please help us to be growing in understanding your word and applying it diligently to our lives. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.